Welcome to the Creating Ripples podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Zahner. I believe in the power of sharing our experiences and knowledge with others, and when we do, we are creating ripples of impact around us. Each week, get ready for intimate personal shares, honest, relatable conversations, aha moments, and so much more. This space was designed to create empowerment, inspiration, community, and provide guidance to elevate those around us. I am so excited to have you here. Get ready and let's start creating ripples. Hello and welcome to the Creating Ripples podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Zahner, and today I am sitting down with Amanda Lynn. She is an author that I recently got introduced with through Susan Ray, who's been on the podcast a few times, and I love when past guests get me connected with future guests because it's always fun to see how the ripples are being created guest to guest and the different ways that each person I have on gets to impact you, the listener. So Amanda, welcome. Welcome to the podcast today. Hello. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here and to learn about your book and your story that influenced the book. So please tell me and the listeners a little bit about who you are and your journey and what brought you to writing a book. Yeah. So um, my name is Amanda Lynn and I am a newly published author uh, for the book uh, Shattered Reality. And the uh, reason for writing the book was my sister took her life in 2007 at the age of 19 uh, by suicide. And so that was what I refer to as the 9-11 of my world. It just was this like massive split. There's the before you and the after you. And through the 14 years, um, I went from, you know, not knowing what depression or, um, you know, mental illness was like, I knew it by a textbook version, but I didn't, there was nothing that I could personally relate to, uh, while she was here. So I always kind of knew that she struggled, but I didn't, I didn't understand it on a personal level until after she left. And then, um, from that day forward, it was a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of understanding in the depths of, depression myself, um, suicidal ideations, which lasted for years and years. Um, yeah. So in 2020, I reached out to, um, an editor, uh, Rodney K press, uh, Lindsay Bednar, and we decided to write a book about it. It was something that I always knew that I needed to do, but something that I, it was always a someday thought instead of uh, we should do it now. So um, yeah, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> so. When you, so there's a few things I want to unpack first. When you were talking about like, it was always a someday instead of something you should do now. I think that is really relatable and something that we all experience when we feel called to do something. And it's so funny that you said that because I do on Mondays, I do what's called a ripple reading. And today's ripple reading was all around self-doubt. And it was, you have to start believing in yourself and then you're going to see results the sooner you do, because self-doubt is what holds us back. It's what's paralyzing us. And so when you said that, that's exactly what came to mind is it's like, we always have that someday, someday, someday. And 
when were you finally, like you said, 2020, but what inside of you made you be like, the day is now, it's no longer someday, this has to happen. Mm -hmm. So in August, I was scrolling through um, a spiritual life coach. Um, She had shared an Instagram post that said something along the lines of you can um, read the book or you can be the book. Um, It's time. And for whatever reason, there was just like this intuitive hit that was like, yeah, yeah, it is. So I just sent a message to her and we had a a call and I was in the middle of um, some personal things at the time. Um, So I knew it wasn't necessarily going to happen next week, but intuitively I knew like I'm going to work with her. She is a great fit um, for me. And it's just a matter of, you know, saving up some money and getting some things in line. So that December, she had reached out again and said, you know, kind of where are you at with things? Are you wanting to move forward? And I came up with a long list of reasons of why I shouldn't or couldn't and felt the need to (laughs) tell her all of them, just like, this isn't going to work because of this. And I should just wait and da, 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 da. And the next day I emailed her back and I was like, scratch all of it. Let's do it. Like I'm, I'm always going to come up with a million reasons why I can't do something. So this has been inside of me for years. I know that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. Well, let's do it. That's amazing. It's hard to get to that point though, right? We keep saying like, we'll do it then we'll do it then we'll do it then. And for you to be able to finally realize like, wait, I keep saying then I keep saying someday, like mm-hmm. either I take action now to see results or it's always going to be someday. And then we get to the end of our life and we look back on all the things that we said we do someday and they never happen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and if that was, you know, one thing that, you know, death teaches you is that someday is not guaranteed. So, so this whole thought process that, you know, I have another five years to sit on it or, yeah, I mean, I think it's just like kind of, you get sick of your own BS too, you know, like you, you get sick of yourself always coming up with reasons as to why things won't work. And then just being kind of calling yourself out like, Hey, guess what? It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be the ideal circumstance. I don't want to look back on this opportunity and say, I missed it. 100%. I couldn't agree more. With you choosing to write a book, what made you call to like that form, like book versus speaking and sharing your experience? And with writing the book, this is kind of a double question, but like with writing the book, what are you hoping the reader takes away from the book? So writing has always come really naturally to me. Um, it's just always been an easy expressive form. Um, so it's something that I guess I've always known that I'm naturally gifted at, but I I don't know how I knew it was through a book, but I just knew that that was how it had to come out of me. I think it's just like the easiest way that I channel my thought processes. Um, and I have done speaking engagements um, over the past seven years. I speak to um, high schools and colleges, middle, anywhere from middle school to college level. Um, 
So I've done a lot of that, but in order for me to get to that point, I had to write everything. So I'm not a great uh, organic speaker in front of people, but I usually have it all written out as to what I want to say and kind of the flow of things. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it was just a, a natural gravitation for me to know that this was how it was supposed to be presented. I love that. I think it's rem it's a great reminder of really leaning into our gifts and not feeling mm -hmm. like we ever have to force ourselves down one path. And in your book, what what is it that you want someone that's reading it to walk away with, to learn? And I'm sure there is a lot of different things that you're mm -hmm. looking for them to get. But suicide is something I personally have a handful of people that have died by suicide in my life. And it's definitely being talked about more, but I think it can't be talked about enough because it can be such an isolating thing for that person to be going through. And as an outsider looking in the people that I've lost, most of them, I had no idea that they were having this battle. And I'm curious within your book, how you talk about that, if that's what you talk about. And then again, what your hope is in letting someone read this book, read your story and what you want them to walk away with. Yeah. So it's broken up into four parts. So part one is just kind of, it's the day of it's the earth shattering phone call uh, from my mom uh, who found her and just kind of what happens in the days and weeks after, um, you know, from the wake to the funeral, to the realization that you haven't even begun to process us what just happened or how vastly different your life is going to be moving forward um you know being surrounded by such amazing community and all of these people just showing up um, is a very humbling experience but also just this whirlwind of chaos and it isn't until a few weeks later when everything kind of settles down and you're left with you know the reality that oh my, you know, what, what do we do with this now or how do we move forward? Um, part two is all of her journal entries and um, outside perspective. So the girl that rode with her to work that morning, um, her boss that worked with her that week, and she was actually the one that, you know, was prompted to call my mom to say that she hadn't come to work. Um, but just like from societal standards, how things look so normal. And she went about her day as if nothing, as if, as if she was going to wake up the next day. Um, uh, so yeah, just by societal standards, how we judge someone and just assume that everything is fine because they are functional and, you know, they dress nice. And she, she was never like out of character as far as, you know, like she didn't go through like a goth stage or a super, obvious um from the outside world like she always had a smile on her face she was pretty quiet kept to herself um yeah so it was like just pointing out societally you know how different things can be versus what's actually going on in someone's head so um sharing her last journal entry um her letter to me um just that kind of stuff so just her actually being able to have a voice and being in someone's head um, from the age of 12, which was when my parents realized that this had started. So these journal entries are varying through the years, you know, at different ages. 
And yet, even at age 37, I could still completely relate to most of them. Like they were all like, oh yeah, who didn't go through this in high school? Like the boy that you liked that your best friend liked too, or, you know, just, just all the things, but yet how it affected her so differently or how heavy it was for her to process. Um, and then part three is, um, my grieving process. So what the stages of grief, how they showed up in my life specifically, um, guilt being the heaviest and anger being the sneakiest. Um, so just kind of how that played out in various ways for me personally. And then part four is healing and just, you know, the different paths and routes that I took from a lot of medication, booze, um, any way to not have to feel the pain because it was already so debilitating um, to more of an alternative health uh, perspective, um, you know, learning how food affects, you know, mental health. I realized that gluten was a really huge driver in um, the way that I was processing things when I would have heavy amounts of it. Um, I would go down kind of the rabbit hole of just, yeah, self-hate and kind of perpetual, <laughs> um, yeah, depression that didn't seem to lift. So just realizing how these things were playing into my life, faith um, had altered significantly um, kind of outside of the church model. Um, yeah, so just kind of what healing looked like and how it showed up for me personally. Uh, through the years and to some degree, I don't know that it's ever, you know, done or you're never just magically cured. Um, but most of the kind of monumental stages that showed up for me. So yeah, um, as far as what I hope people get out of it, the overall goal was to not to pinpoint one specific uh, it, I don't want it to be targeted to one audience. Um, there have been people who have said, I've never dealt with um, loss by suicide. I've never dealt with mental health issues. I've never even dealt with loss in any form. And yet I found it relatable to my marriage or I found it relatable to how I parent. Or um, So I guess the overall goal is not for it to, to just be um, mental health only or suicide related only. Um, we wanted anyone that could pick up the book to be able to relate to it. Um, so whether that is you are a suicide survivor, it's just kind of validating your experience that, you know, you're, you're not alone in this grief process and it is really heavy and really <laughs> terrible. Um, and the guilt is overwhelming. Um, if you are struggling yourself, um, we hear you, we see you, you also are validated. Uh, if you have no idea what you're, you're on the outside trying to help someone struggling and you don't get it at all, I totally get that perspective as well because I didn't get any of it when she was struggling. Um, that here is for you to have a better understanding as to what is going on in their head. Um, so yeah, it was really just a little bit of everything. We want everybody to better understand what this journey is like, whether it's grief for suffering from mental health yourself or having no idea. So how for you, you talked about this at the beginning of the not understanding where she was. And as you were talking about the story 
and how in her entries she was going through similar things that many of us go through, but to her, it impacted her differently. And that truly is mental health, right? We all process an interaction in different ways. It impacts us in different ways. And I think for people that don't uh, struggle with mental health or have depression, anxiety, whatever it is that they're going through, it can be really hard to understand, well, like, why is this impacting them that way when it's not impacting me that same way? And for you, what was that journey like of trying to get a better understanding of that? So when she was here, I was just always like, I was the happy-go-lucky, like, life's a blast, let's party, um, the rebel, you know, very uh, extroverted, social. Um, so for me, it was just, I, you know, just remember saying frequently, like, lighten up, Joes, it's okay, like, just be happy, come on what it's no big deal. Why are you worried about it? Or, you know, everything was just, I mean, yeah, yeah. I just couldn't relate to it. So it was very rarely was I ever validating her experience because it was just like, that's not that big of a deal. Or you you're, you're okay. Move along or um, be happier. Um, as if she had control over it. Um, so yeah, I think part of it was being young and just really not understanding. I also don't think I understood the depths to which she was struggling. Um, you know, my mom and dad dealt more with that. So I just don't know that I really understood like the weight of it all. Um, as for, I, I, sorry, what was your second, the second part of the question with the book? So within the book, just like how, when they are going through that, like, how did your journey start to shift and being able to get a better understanding of what she was going through in a situation that maybe like kind of what you were just talking about of, you know, it's okay. And like, it's gonna, it's, it's normal, but like only having to realize like, oh, this is that actually impacted her far more deeply than I actually realized. realized. What did your journey to understanding that better? What was that like? Because I think many people that don't have depression or anxiety, whatever it is that someone's going through, it's really hard to understand how that person is processing a situation in a different manner. And I am curious exactly like how you started to shift that in yourself and understand it more because I think the more we can talk about that, it helps others to then start to shift and get a better understanding of how can I support those around me that may be going through this in their life. So I would say on repeat um, for months, if not years after, um, if this is how you felt every single day of your life, then I do not blame you one bit for choosing what you did, because I know why I'm this sad and why it's this heavy. And you, you didn't even know, like you, it was, it was so unbearable. You didn't even, you know, you couldn't even process it. And I know, and I still like, it's so debilitating. It's like this mental and physical pain that just seems to, it's like this black cloud that you just can't seem to get rid of uh, following you around. So um, 
yeah, I, I remember that just nonstop. Like, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. This is so bad. It's so bad. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I just want to see you again. Um, I'm so sorry for all the ways in which I contributed to your decision because they were countless. Um, I was very warped in terms of, I would say I still can't remember a lot of like the good, <laughs> like I w became hyper-focused and semi-obsessed on all the things that I did from little on. Like I left her on the bus when she was in kindergarten so I could go hang out with my friends and I left her by herself, you know, like all the, all the notches on the board that I contributed to and was it this was it that you know was it one specific thing was it all of it was the baggage just too heavy and after a while it just becomes unbearable um yeah so I just did a lot of writing um throughout the book around um just what that actually feels like um avalanche is the chapter that's coming to mind um for those that if you don't mind i will just read an excerpt um that i think more clearly explains um it starts out it starts out as fleeting thoughts what if i crank the steering wheel too hard to the right two more steps forward puts you off the ledge how long would it take to fill the garage so i can fall asleep never to have to wake up again I can still observe myself. The thoughts are there coming and going, but they are not in control. I am until I'm not. What begins as a snowball can become an avalanche in a matter of hours. What once was a fleeting thought now becomes the leading thought. The panic and drowning begin to build. The thoughts arise and the body begins reacting. I'm short of breath. My chest feels heavy. I do not want to eat and sleep is a rarity. It's all so much. I just want to breathe. I just need to get quiet and clear, but nothing in my head will allow it. Why is it foggy why does it feel so intense why does it feel familiar why does it keep haunting me so that's just a little part of one of the chapters but it's just like you know I, it can be good and then and then it can just snowball quickly and it's like I'm fine I'm fine I'm not fine um so yeah I think just bringing some of those things to light um just being able to relate to other people of like this is how it can escalate I think that's where it's so hard when you're the person on the outside looking in, you don't even realize, but as you were reading that, it's, that's what someone's going through and a situation that might seem really small to us could be something that adds to that snowball. Yeah. And then another situation happens that seems fine again, but it adds to that snowball. And then it gets to that point where that person feels like so much has been put on top of them that they don't know where to go next right. and the more that these conversations happen it helps anybody realize we really never know the struggle that someone else is going through and mm -hmm. so what ways have you shifted how you show up in the world in terms of interactions with other people because I know I do it too where we're like you're fine it's fine. What, why do you have to be upset about? Like, I think it's, I don't even know, like if there's a word for it, but I do feel like sometimes we can all be like, 
but look at what you have. And it's right. like, that's so just dismissive. Be grateful. Right. right. That's so dismissive. It's so passive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how, how have you started to show up in the world differently versus I think a lot of us just fall back into that way. And mm-hmm. how have you shown up differently and how can others show up differently to recognize like the feelings and thoughts of others are valid. And rather than like having this like push off to be like, it's beautiful outside. What do you have to be upset about? How can mm-hmm. we instead listen and understand how we can support? Mm-hmm. So I would say passive is uh, definitely... <laughs> Uh, you know, how I tend to probably relate. It's like a way of, yeah, not having to take it on myself, maybe, because I feel like I can sway either from one end of the spectrum to the other, as far as like, I'm so engulfed in it and like taking it on myself that like, like, it's like, as if I'm feeling it for the person, the empathetic side is just like, so overwhelming, or it's like, I, I can't. um, And then I become dismissive. Um, yeah, I do. I went through very much a stage of, um, you know, can you focus on what you're grateful for, but how lucky are we? And then realizing like, yeah, you're still being dismissive. That wasn't helpful. (laughs) Um, yeah, because I, I think we do, we're, you know, we're in a first world country at the end of the day, like all of our basic needs are met and it's as if we struggle worse than, you know, a majority of maybe the rest of society. I remember listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking to someone um, who lived in Southern California and he was saying how, you know, he gets, he has the privilege of getting out of bed every day. Joe Rogan was saying something along the lines of like, God, you're just an animal. You're like up at four in the morning and you're at the gym and just like making us all look bad. And he's like, now I I'm like privileged enough to be able to get out of bed at 4am and go work out because while I'm going to do that, there are mothers and parents all over Southern California that are in a poverty state who are getting out of bed at 4am to go feed their families. And they're not getting home until, you know, eight at night. Um, the they're in pure survival mode just to put food on the table. So like I'm the lucky one who, you know, gets the privilege of living this life. And he had said how the, um, you know, mental health is so much more rampant and suicide and suicidal ideations are more rampant in those that are privileged because we have the time to sit around and think about what we don't have. We're like scrolling and comparing ourselves and, we're like so busy in the world of lack of how, you know, this person's on vacation. Well, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, they look like that. How come I can't look like that? All the, the whole world of comparison versus these people who are working to put food on the table. And like, they're here because that's literally what they're doing to survive. And they don't have time to like sit and worry about how they, you know, might not have as much as their neighbor. Um, so I thought that was really an interesting concept too. Um, so then I felt like a little, yeah, I got a little heavy on like the, yeah, but what do you have to be grateful for? But look at how lucky we are. And it's like, you know, when, when you're in those depths, that's just, it's not a helpful response. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I would say, yeah, just the, the simple act of listening, um, by nature, I would say I'm, I'm a fixer. 
um, is definitely something that I need to work on. And I know most women, that is just how we tend to operate is like, what can we do to fix the situation? Um, so I do tend to just sway more towards solution. Um, like, okay, well, you know, there's a life coach or there's, you know, this doctor or where do you think you need to go in order to feel more supported or what can I do to help? Um, instead of maybe just sitting in that space of, they just need to vent and you can just leave it alone. (laughs) The hard part with that is it's like too, I think you could ask someone like, what do you need? And nobody knows. They don't know. They don't have an Nobody answer knows. or yeah. they, they might be going through something and not even be able to recognize or process verbally what it is that they need. Mm-hmm. So like, how do you say I need reprieve from my own thoughts and mind? Right. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, what's going on in here is like, I need to be able to breathe and I literally can't breathe. I can't make this stop. It won't slow down. Like yeah. So yeah. What do you say to that? So how did you work through the feelings of guilt? Because if you have someone in your life and you're trying to help them and they're unable to verbalize their needs, it can feel like, well, what could I have done differently? But really mm-hmm. we might not have even known that they needed our help. Sure. Yeah, always the fine line of, um, yeah, where do I step in and where do I step back? And, you know, where's support and where, you know, do I need to grab their hand and say, hey, you know, one foot in front of the other, we need to go see a doctor. Um, I would say my mom was very good at that, um, knowing when to, you know, step aside and when to step in. And there were many times where she had to step in. And at the time it was like, oh, you're so dramatic or, oh God, it's fine. It's no big deal, whatever. But looking back, like, you know, those were monumental, like <laughs> almost a complete change in course uh, had she not stepped in um, and said like, I'm not losing another one. What do we need to do here? You need to have a doctor's appointment made. Um, this, is, this is how it needs to unfold. So um, that I am grateful for. And I think a lot of that is just kind of intuitive too, of knowing, you know, especially with your kids, like you just like, no, something's off here. Um, yeah, I, I was recently asked by a counselor, you know, how do I, you know, offer hope to these kids or what was the turning point or where, you know, what, why didn't you follow through with it? And I cover this in the book as well. Um, I would say I was more scared of not following through than the act of actually following through itself. So I was more nervous that it wouldn't work than I was if it did work. And that sounds really backwards and messed up, but it's like an almost, I didn't, I didn't want to half-ass it and it'd be a car accident. And then I was paralyzed and still here. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a lot of help that way. I think healing, it should shows up in the, the most random of ways. Like, um, and a lot of it, I mean, when I look back at all the different avenues that I took, um, whether it was trying alternative health or different faith-based um, things or different conversations, I would say the writing of the book was the ultimate healing um, and the guilt. Um, 
actually, I would say the turning point for that was last July, I was having a conversation with one of my best friends for the past 25 years. And she was asking how the book was going. I was just saying, I, you know, emotionally, it's just been so exhausting to go back and relive all this and write it in the present moment. And um, I had no idea there was so much there when I'd already felt like I had worked through so much stuff. And the guilt of just replaying every, you know, there's a chapter of where I just like replay everything that I, how I contributed or could have contributed to her decision um, from little on. And she was like, gosh, it was so frustrating watching you just beat yourself up on repeat all the time, because what you talk about is not at all what I remember of your relationship with her. It you, you were so good to her. You always included her. I never, you know, asked my sister to come along unless you suggested it or, um, all, all these things where it was just like, wait, I don't remember any of that. Like I've never allowed myself to remember that, like only what I did wrong, only how I contributed. So we actually had her do an excerpt for the book and write how different it was for her that this was not at all you know, what I was seeing from the outside and to watch you just, you know, beat yourself up on repeat was so exhausting because it was like, you're so distorted. That's not how it was. So I think that was actually a really monumental turning point for me of like, let it go. You know, like you don't have to hate yourself over and over and over again. And her journal entries, I hadn't read them in well over a decade. Um, and realizing that she, was like Amanda's the best and I'll be okay as long as I have Amanda and just being like what like no I I did all these things wrong and yet she didn't perceive it that way so that was really mind-blowing too guilt is such a powerful thing and I feel just from like listening to your experience of like what you kept going back to and replaying over and over and I think that that is true of anybody when they lose someone by suicide is you start to think about every interaction that you had with them and like what could you have done Mm -hmm. differently so you sharing your friend's experience of like actually that interaction looked very differently to me Mm -hmm. I think is a really great reminder if you're someone that has lost someone by suicide is we're our own worst critic and we're Mm going to see it as a thousand different ways we could have played out a scenario differently. But at the end of the day, we actually will never know Mm -hmm. if how those interactions played into what led to that person dying from suicide. And I think it's hard to look at it when we're out of it, but the more we can realize like we actually don't know and you sharing your sister's thoughts through the journal entry is like so vastly different than what you're sharing right now of what you experienced versus what she experienced. Mm -hmm. Well, and even like it was everything, then everything perpetuated. So, you know, my divorce, my, any, you know, romantic relationship, any, any, it was just, you did this wrong and then you did that wrong. And then have you not said this or done it differently or that's, you know, it's just, it like becomes this ingrained thought process that you are at fault for every wrongdoing. (laughs) No, it was just like it, it was never ending. Like you contributed to this too. Good job. 
you know, hate yourself some more because you deserve it. And this is your penance for all the things that you've done wrong, you know? So it's just kind of a crazy, I mean, and I suppose part of it's the, the voice of depression too, you know, more ways that you, you messed it up. Yeah. Has therapy been a big part of your life now as you work through things? Because I, I feel a lot of times more people are talking about mental health, more people are talking about therapy, but it's not just like you go to one session and everything is resolved. It, it takes a lot of work and continuing to show up for you. And you talked about like holistic health and wellness and the different things that you've done and how your book was very therapeutic for you. But in terms of therapy, you've mentioned a few times that you've gone to sessions and how has that been eye-opening to you to better understand mental health? for yourself and just for those that you interact with that may also be struggling. So I, so November 14th was, um, 2007 was when she died. Um, May 4th of 2008, I was laying my daughter down for a nap and I had these just nonstop reoccurring thoughts of how many pills are in the cupboard, how many pills are in the cupboard. Could you get it done by the time she wakes up? Da, 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 da. So that was a, my first interaction with suicidal ideations. Um, I knew objectively I could look at the thoughts and be like, this is not, not normal. You should not be thinking this. Where is this coming from? But very obsessive, very quickly. Um, so I was placed on a six-week leave from work and put through this intensive outpatient um, therapy program. And during this time, they, I don't think I could get into the institution that I was working for, for a psychologist. So they had suggested this guy that had just left Mayo and was starting his own company. And his name was Don Williams. And he was just unbelievable and not textbook unbelievable, like just got stuff on like a personal level. And was going through a lot of upheaval and struggle himself. And there was just something kind of reassuring of just knowing someone else is kind of in the midst of their own shit and like they get it on a different level. Um, he was, he was unbelievable, a huge catalyst and um, always open to me trying different things and what do you have to lose? Sure. Give it a try. It's not really my cup of tea, but I say, you know, what's it going to hurt? So try the alternative world or, um, this or that. Um, he was my one and only therapist actually. And he actually just passed away unexpectedly a couple of years ago. Um, otherwise it was mostly just like more taking the life coach approach. Um, I just like the idea that, um, people could get it. The Vanessa files is, the one that I started with and she's more spiritual based and just learning how to be more in tune with yourself and your intuition and your gut and learning how to better manage, like, you know, sit in those meditative spaces where you're not allowing the thoughts to literally take control of your life where you can't function. Um, so that was, you know, really helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, the schools were helpful. It was realizing, getting a lot of feedback from the kids as to where they were at and then constantly modifying my approach as to how I was connecting with them. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just like this, you know, it's just this gradual 
experience where, you know, there were days where it was crank the steering wheel to the right. And there were days where it was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm healed. <laughs> um, but it, it was a roller coaster ride for sure. So I don't know if there was any specific catalyst, I guess, but um, yeah, it's just a lot of, lot of everything and it's work. It's the internal work. It's, it's the work that nobody society doesn't talk about. So we're like, so focused to be, you know, you know, what's your income and what kind of house do you live in? And that's, that's not all the societal physical things that we look at, but this is like the internal really hard gritty work of having to look at your family structure, your family dynamics, yourself, how you play a role in your relationships. It's a huge amount of self-awareness. And then taking responsibility as to how you play into all of this, um, while also to, you know trying not to hate yourself for the rest of your life because this was how you acted in certain circumstances, and just moving on and choosing to do it differently. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's it. It's some of the hardest work I've ever done, but it's not the gym. It's not, you know, your bank account. It's not what you live in. It's not all the things. It's, it's all the stuff nobody wants to talk about, you know, it, it's how your relationships are being affected, how your life is lived. It's, it affects everything, but yet, you know, it's not the, it's not the feeling kind of stuff many care to touch. <laughs> it, you're doing the work to feel better on the inside. But to everyone else looking on the outside, we compare to physical things when it's like you could be so fulfilled on the inside and we need to start shifting that focus to be that's where the hard work and energy needs to be. Because when we feel full inside, and that's not to say there's never going to be hard days, there's not going to be struggles. But when we do that work and we feel good internally with who we are and how we're showing up that's what matters more than the nice car or the nice home or the income that you make, because we need to be able to put into work different things that help us become the person that we want to be on this earth. Mm-hmm. The temporary forms of satisfaction, which is a society that we grew up constantly paying attention to. It became, you know, I remember asking my grandpa, where, where did it all start to change? You know, like at what point you know, this isn't what you grew up in. And he said it was the eighties after the, um, big farming crash and, um, the markets, you know, crashed and a lot of people lost their livelihoods. And, um, he goes, it just, there became this, um, overall societal norm of, um, keeping up with the Joneses. And then it turned into outdoing the Joneses. Like, it's just never enough. Like nothing is ever enough. So there's, we're always grabbing for some way to numb. Well, when I get this, it'll be better when I, you know, when I drink, when I, all the things, the drugs, the, whatever the the thing, we all have it, you know, like we not pointing blame by any means. Like I have a highly addictive personality, so I'm by no means uh, judging. Um, But yeah, it's just really realizing like it's never, I think that is why so many people are unfulfilled because they're so out of touch with themselves, trying to keep up with society and exhausting themselves to so to the nth degree, working three jobs so you know their kids can do all the things to it's just yeah, this perpetual um, landslide it almost feels like instead of just 
how do you learn to be content within you despite what's happening outside of you which again I don't know that you're ever magically there (laughs) but right it's it's it is though developing a little bit of understanding of sometimes we put all of our eggs in one basket once we reach whatever that is chances are you might feel like all of a sudden like this is amazing but if you aren't doing any work internally, that will fade. Yeah, doing that quickly. internal work is going to help you for the rest of your life exponentially. It's going, it's wealth. It's like your health is wealth, like your mental health is wealth. You investing in you and the inside of you and like your mind and your spirit and your soul is going to be so much more and allow you to feel so much more wealth within whom you are versus the physical things that we work towards. They might feel good in that moment or for a few days, but that will fade. But if we can invest in ourselves, that's going to be the most beneficial investment of all. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think. When I look back, I mean, almost everything, if I, if there's one piece of advice, it is you are almost always going to feel out of alignment, dissatisfied, looking for the next thing. But when this, da, 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 when you are in the, the game, the societal game, when you are playing everyone else's game and you're out of touch with yourself, the more you start trusting your gut, listening to yourself, even when the rest makes no logical sense. Most of the decisions that I have made, even just in the past few months, they don't make sense logically. And yet they weirdly work themselves out in a totally different manner than I would have, you know, that I would have imagined. So I think part of it is just this struggle is, is us fighting with ourselves. It's like, you know, our internal guidance system versus the rest of the world, logic versus intuition. We're just constantly, but I have to, but I have to, what do you mean? I can't quit my job, but I have to this, I have to that, but I should. I mean, I I did that for years. So it's like, we're always swimming upstream thinking we have to be doing X, Y, and Z when really, if we just take a step back and say, all right, so I got to adjust my income for a little bit to, you know, get this off of the ground or do this or, um, go a different direction. Like, it's almost like, I don't know, societally, we've forgotten that those are options. (laughs) You know, it's like we, we've adjusted so much to our societal norms and our way of living that we forget that like, we could take a step back and just, you know, maybe not go out as much for a couple of months or do things a little differently so we can adjust. Um, but yeah, I really do feel like when I look back, the swimming upstream was always me versus me and it was my gut versus what everyone else was telling me I should be doing that is so relatable (laughs) and it's so hard though to not let those external voices creep in I talk about that a lot on the podcast of being able to discern when it's someone else's thoughts flowing through versus our own and what mm-hmm. is actually holding us back is it ourself or is it the thoughts of others and the more that we can become in tune with who we are what is aligned with our hopes our dreams our desires 
it helps us to make those decisions a little bit easier because we're always going to have external voices putting their input in. We're going to have other people's thoughts that we're going to always be consuming, whether it's on social media, whatever, everyone has their own opinions. And at the end of the day, we have to be able to discern when it's our opinion, our thought, our gut, our intuition to let that be the guide that steers us forward. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I there's uh, in part two with her journal entries, a chapter called The Voice. And it is her saying, um, you know, the last sentence is the one thing I've realized is that I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. And I just said, I wonder who the voice in her head was telling her she was dumb in the first place. Was it a classmate, a family member, school staff, mainstream media, or cultural belief? What piece of the baggage was that? Would she have been able to identify it if asked? We all have those voices that are speaking to us. What we don't realize is that few of them are, are our own. They are the critical voices of those around us, reminding us that we didn't measure up, that we should have tried harder, done better, that we simply aren't enough. You know, so it's, yeah, was it something specific that caused that subconscious patterning or was it slow and gradual, a tone of voice and outside expectation that didn't understand it was as easy as they were saying it should be, or perhaps as it was for them. So here we are walking around with all these little voices in our heads that weren't ours to begin with, reminding us, reminding us of where we went wrong or how we need to do and be better, do more, feeling as though we are never enough in some form. So it's like, yeah, I mean, if we just sat down to think about all the things that we're saying to ourselves, was it, is that mine? Do I, do I believe that? Or was that when I was five and you know, for me, it was always, um, I was always in trouble for talking too much in school. So it was always like, Oh, oh another conference where Amanda, you know, <laughs> like Amanda's too much. She's too much. She, um, yeah, I don't know, too happy to, um, yeah, all the things. And it's like, then after a while, you're like, Oh, you know, I shouldn't be me. Cause that's exhausting for everyone else. So the teachers are mad again. It's the reframe of too much. And I'll use your example of your too muchness for some might feel like, okay, she needs to calm down, rein it in. And for others, they strive for your too muchness. They love it. It lights them up. It brings energy into the room. And we have to be able to realize like, what our strengths are, are not going to always be for everybody else. And being too much is a strength. It's something that you get to lean into and you get to let your light shine. And there are going to be people, people that try to dim that too muchness, but the more we can own that, if that's what makes you, you, because that's what earth's meant to be, right? We're all meant to be these unique, beautiful humans. And so things that are different from someone else, they're going to want to try to dim and we have to realize, well, that's just not who they are, but this is me. And I get to own that part of myself. Sure. And and without the egotistical part behind it, you know, or the, because I am better or, you know, there's kind of a fine line between the arrogance and the, the genuine parts of ourselves that, you know, versus because I can be, or because I am better or because I do own more that, that like system of hierarchy, I guess, too. Um, you know, you can see it both playing themselves out to some degree, but yeah, I mean, it's just, everyone is, everyone is so lost in everyone else's mud and muck (laughs) and they don't even know it. Um, so I think, yeah, like a superpower is just being able to see people for who they are and like, you know, their scars and how amazing 
those parts of them can be without you know judging them for it because we're already doing that to ourselves day in and day out like you said we're our our own worst critic right it's letting it's letting each person be who they are and when we're interacting with someone that maybe we don't jive with obviously you can give feedback to someone in a caring way Mm -hmm. And like you said, if someone's ego is emanating out, you can let them know, but it's at their discretion how they take that. But when I think about like, I use this in a group coaching that I'm in right now, like I was always like too much as a kid. I was running around high energy, go, 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 go. And like, I always felt like people were like, okay, like rein it in, let's slow it down. And for so long, I was like, okay, being high energy is bad. Being like myself and like wild and free is not good. Mm-hmm. And over the, like the last probably five to seven years, I realized, well, wait, me being high energy is me. Me wanting to interact with all these people is me. I like love showing up on social media and just like having fun and dancing around. And so like shifting that thing that for so long I felt was like bad into mm-hmm recognizing, well, it is a strength of mine, but doing it in a way that isn't like, oh, I am this proud woman. It's like, no, I love the high energy me, but also discerning whether like, oh, my ego is starting to creep in or, oh, this is actually just me being me. And Mm -hmm. you do have to be able to discern the two, but owning those parts of who we are that aren't always going to be aligned with others. Sure. Yeah, and most of the time you can go back to early childhood and, you know, who were you then? And yeah, it's very few of us have, yeah, kept those parts of ourselves um, because we weren't in nurturing environments where a lot of that was tolerated or allowed or just in stressful family situations where, you know, parents were in survival mode and they just didn't have the capacity for it. Um, You know, again, no right, wrong or otherwise, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think almost, I, I don't know if I dare say 90 to 95% of the time when we are out of alignment, it's because we're, we're following logic instead of gut instinct. And when you learn to go with what feels right to you versus what everyone else is saying you should do, um, I feel like the internal battle becomes a lot less love what you said following logic versus gut instinct Mm -hmm. because sometimes you just got to go with the gut and it might not be logical to other people and that is okay right that's a great way to think about it yeah yeah it really it feels like the the misalignment is I I remember hearing I think it was Bentino Mazzaro um, years ago had said like bipolar is um, the fighting the fight between the ego and the soul that was a really interesting concept of yeah it's like you're switching back and forth between these two but I should this is how it has to be versus but over here feels better but we're not here to feel you need to do it yeah I don't know I just was like huh that's a it's a very interesting concept and yet does it have to be bipolar isn't that just all of us like when we're out of alignment, I, I tell my 17 year old, like, girl, I can't make decisions for you forever. Like you got to sit down, get quiet and tap in. Like, 
what, what does your gut say? I don't know. You got to start. I'm telling you, you will spend a majority of your life. <laughs> oh, it's so painful to go against what you know you need to do. So take it from me who did it for, again, probably just until the last few years, um, was constantly swimming upstream thinking if I keep pushing, if I keep this da, 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 because I should, or I don't want to make a mad or this or that. Um, yeah, it's going to be so much harder. So just go with the flow and do what you feel is right. That's great parenting too. I think yeah. <laughs> it's Thank a you. huge shift from the type of parenting I feel like many millennials grew up with. Uh, my sister has a 15 year old and she has a very parent similar parenting style to exactly what you're talking about. And I think the more we can have those conversations with our kids to let them know it's okay to follow what they're feeling inside versus trying to dictate. And I think maybe us as millennials have that intuitive sense because we are now realizing, wow, I made a lot of decisions that actually were not true to me at all. Right. And that is nothing against our parents or their parenting style. It was how they were raised up. And it's one thing that I think is so cool about um, our generation is we're starting to realize like we can shift the cycle. We can break the cycle uh, because we're coming so much more self-aware of Mm -hmm. ourselves and who we are and what's actually true to us. And how that's affecting our kids and how much they're taking on. And by no means am I saying that every time I am aware enough to say, sit down and, and tap into yourself. Cause there are plenty of days I'm not saying that <laughs> and I'm putting in my own two cents or I'm dictating, you know? So, I mean, it's a, it's a constant. Um, I think the closer she gets to being an adult and knowing, you know, she's going to be leaving next year. It, it's probably become more of an awareness to me of like, I can't keep always providing the answers for you. You're really going to need to, to start getting in tune with yourself. So, um, I mean, it's a, work in progress 24 seven, don't get me wrong. So the, the idea that we're all doing it in each moment and saying we're aware as parents when we're also being triggered is, is real life too. Amanda, I have a few more questions. And one of them is, I'm curious for you, what has been the biggest learning through this process of writing a book and putting your thoughts and feelings and understanding into this form? So, yeah, it was an unbelievable healing process. Um, I really realized how much I need to process through conversation of people around me. So all of these things are happening and I'm having these conversations and then all of a sudden I can give it a few days and then I can sit down and write to it. So just how I I need those, the people around me kind of reflecting back to me. And then, I don't know, it's like I can almost like alchemize or kind of transmute it into words into more of a maybe neutral perspective or kind of take the, the emotion out of it and then bring to light, you know, the topic and maybe a better, better way. Um, the writing process, I was just really lucky to have an editor who was also, I mean, she's like a coach, you know, she was totally with me through the whole process. I mean, there were days where it was just nonstop tears and, there was a lot of me having to work through the chapters and her 
knowing when to say, you know what, we're going to take a break. We're not going to meet for a little bit. Let's just take a breather. And her saying, you know, we're going to double down and let's dig into this and see what comes up. So um, that, that was huge for me. Um, Lindsay was really monumental in that perspective, because when you're writing about your life, like you have no choice, but to, yeah, work through all of it emotionally. So, um, yeah, I, I, the whole experience was just, I don't know, it was healing in a totally different way. It was 14 years worth of self hate and guilt and grief that I feel like literally left my body when it went into print. Uh, it's like the first time that I have felt an ounce of reprieve since it happened. That just in the last couple of months, I've been able to say like, oh shit, it feels good to be back. <laughs> feels so good to feel lighter and not so weighed down and be able to listen to my gut because I'm not so clouded with grief and angst and all the things, so. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a monumental process for sure. I, I'd suggest it to any, I mean, in just writing, I think writing is just so healing and everyone has their different meditative state. So I guess whatever that is to you, you know, my mom, my mom will walk. Um, she's like walking, you know, two to three times a day. Just that's her like meditation. She's like, you know, I pray. I just like work through some things and that's how I get through it. So whatever that is for each individual, but really finding the time for that space for you to be able to clear out whatever it is that's bogging you down because everyone has it. That's great advice. My last question for you, I say this every time, but it really is my favorite question that I get to ask. And it is, what is the ripple that you want to create? Oh, that's a good question. I... The overall goal of the book was to, we did not want to promote suicide and we were very careful about that, but also just having more empathy for those that choose this route because there's way more to it and a weight that many can't understand. Um, Validating people's experiences, whether you're the suicide survivor or you're in the depths of hell yourself. Um, I think it's just the overall self-awareness and just knowing that it's going to be okay. Like, I know that sounds cliche and, you know, your head tells you absolutely it's not going to be because this is the worst feeling I've ever experienced. And I keep getting knocked down time after time after time again, but it really is going to be okay. Like life is a roller coaster and you're not going to stay in the height of bliss forever any more than you're going to stay in the depths of hell forever. You know, like it's, that's the human experience is, is experiencing both like heaven and hell, I guess. Right. Like, yeah. And I, I think we've just not normalized that really this is stuff that everyone is going through that the, some of the biggest feedback that I've gotten is like, oh my gosh, I went to school with her and I was going through the same stuff and I had no idea that she was too. Um, it's just all this stuff that it's like, it's normal. I promise like these journal entries that she's writing at the age of 12 and 15 and 17 and whatever, we all can relate to it. It's just normalizing where you're at 
because everybody's been somewhere that's similar. And if they haven't, they will, because nobody's like null and void from the crash and burn, unfortunately. Such a good reminder and a great ripple. Amanda, I'm so happy that Sue's connected us and that you were able to come on the podcast. Where can my listeners get connected with you and how can they find your book? I will link it all in the show notes as well. Sure. So the book name is Shattered Reality um, by Amanda Lynn, and that is available on Amazon, both through paperback and Kindle version. Um, And then my personal um, site is www.crisisaverted.org. Thank you, Suze, because she uh, came up with that name while we were in the, while we were working together. So um, she has to thank for that one because I don't remember exactly what the first business name was, but it had ripple in it. Uh, so I think it's so funny that your podcast is that, um, but yeah, so www.crisisaverted.org. Um, and then the link to the book for Amazon is on there as well. Amazing. And like I said, I'll link this all in the show notes. Definitely go check out Amanda's book and start uh, following her on social media and go to her website. Thank you, Amanda, again for coming on the podcast. Uh, I look forward to continuing to watch your journey. And to all of the listeners, don't forget to share this podcast out with someone else you think would benefit from listening. Hit that follow and subscribe button. And until next time, let's go out and start creating ripples. Oh, 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 oh,